Hey, welcome to the Afikta podcast. Today's episode is going to feature a conversation with Diana Abu Ali, who is the director of the Arab American National Museum in Detroit. Conversation is moderated by me, Mikey Mehenna, and Yezan Kopti. We originally recorded this on Zoom on June 25th, 2020. Hope you enjoy. My name is Mikey Mehenna. I'm joined by Yezan Kopti. And we are very, very excited to be joined by our guest, Diana Abu Ali from the Arab American National Museum. Thanks, Mikey. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm notoriously bad at multitasking, so I'm in charge of uh, flipping through the slides as we go. So if we get stuck on a slide, you know, feel free somebody to just raise your hand or go like this and I'll go to the next one. Um, I'm really delighted to have uh, Diana Abu Ali with us today. Um, she's a dear friend of mine. We've known each other for a long time. And Deanna currently serves as the director of the Arab American National Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. Um, and she's worked for a number of years in higher education and the cultural heritage sectors in the U.S., Palestine, and in Jordan. Um, Deanna holds a Ph.D. in History and Middle Eastern Studies from Harvard University. And she was the assistant professor at the Department of Asian and Middle Eastern Languages and Literature at Dartmouth College uh, between 2006 and 2012. Um, after that, Deanna uh, uh, was the head of research and collections at the newly established uh, Palestinian Museum in Birzeit, Palestine. Uh, she worked in Jordan after that in many different capacities as the director of education and outreach, um, uh, outreach and awareness at the Petra National Trust, and also as a project manager um, at Tidaz, the Widad Kawar home for the Arab dress, which is one of my favorite museums as we're on the topic, um, spearheading a project there uh, dealing with Syrian artisans and um, who had uh, fled to, to Jordan. Um, uh, Deanna also organized and delivered uh, cultural heritage education workshops to Syrian children and women in Azra and Zathari refugee camps in Jordan um, and occasionally teaches college level uh, courses in the US and Jordan. Um, she is a member of the General Assembly of Ta'awan, the Welfare Association, which many of you probably know, the largest Palestinian NGO that, uh, that provides development and humanitarian assistance to Palestinians in um, the occupied territories and in Lebanon. And she is a member of the board of directors of Arte East and um, is a member of Citizens Advisory Committee at the University of Michigan, Dearborn. So, uh, quite a lot of uh, things, quite a lot of hats that you wear, Deanna. Um, and I wanted to kick off the conversation. I, this was the slide that I wanted to have up as I talked about all of those institutions and positions. Um, but I kind of wanted to kick off the conversation, uh, Deanna, talking a little bit and hearing from you a little bit about sort of the earlier part of your career in academia as a social historian and how that led to what you're doing today with museums and your work in the cultural heritage sectors. Sure. Thanks, Yazan and, and Mikey for uh, inviting me. And I'm uh, really excited to be uh, a part of this uh, great initiative, Afikra. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, not just a kindness, but a pleasure to, to be here with you all. Um, and thank you for that, that, that introduction. Um, uh, yeah, so I started my kind of career, my, my, my path as a, you know, as a student of history. And um, I got interested in, in history and in, particularly in studying um, Palestinian history before uh, 1948. And not just before 1948, but before sort of Jewish immigration to, to Palestine. So I was very curious about, you know, what Palestinian society and culture was like um, before Palestine, the region became politicized uh, mm -hmm. as it did after you know, Jewish immigration, creation of the state of Israel, Zionism, what have you. And when I you know, was coming of age in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, you know, the idea of Palestine as a place, um, as a land without a people was still sort of a common, common, uh, commonly held assumption and things, people still talked about that. And so, um, and, uh, you know, I was also, so history was something I was always interested in and, and I ended up, uh, you know, going to graduate school for that and, and studying um, uh, family history. So I ended up studying Ottoman history because, you know, Palestine was part of the Ottoman Empire um, up until the early 20th century. 
and uh, I wanted to look at, so I started looking at Palestine within that Ottoman orbit, and I was interested in family history. So the question I was kind of trying to answer is, can you, can you do a history of family in the Middle East, and in particular Jerusalem, which was the city I, I chose, uh, and it happened to be in the 17th century, can you do a, a history of family in the Middle East without the kind of documents that say you have in Europe at the, at the same time? So in Europe you have you know, an embarrassment of riches, you have diaries, you have letters, you have paintings, you have all this material you can work with to kind of re rebuild that or reconstruct that history. What was life like? What was family life like in the past? Uh, in Jerusalem and Palestine, it's harder to do because we don't have those documents available. So I used court records to kind of reconstruct what a family was doing over 25 years, from about 1695, from 1595 to 1620. So, um, so that's what I, I, how I got into kind of academia and history and and. Um, it was a kind of, um, so there was that sort of intellectual curiosity, but I, I, I know Yeza knows a bit about my, my personal life. It was kind of a, I kind of ended up going to graduate school for, for not just for the intellectual kind of um, pursuit, but there were other reasons, personal reasons. Um, but anyway, that, that led me and, and, you know, I got a job at Dartmouth right after I finished. I was really lucky to land there first as a lecturer, actually, and then as an assistant professor. And, and I continued to teach um, about Middle Eastern, you know, history studies. I was in a language and literature department, so I was, had to teach a lot more about cultural histories than social history. Um, so I talked a lot about, you know, we talked, I, you know, looking at middle, the Middle East through literature, let's say, um, through film, what have you. Um, so, um, but I decided at a point that even though I was very um, privileged to be at Dartmouth and it was really a great place to teach because, um, you know, you're, you, you're dealing with the student bodies, really, you know, the really smart kids, they're, they're um, uh, very motivated. It's a wealthy university, so the research funds are, you know, the, the support is, is there. But I wasn't happy, <laughs> I think. I think it was, um, you know, if I'm going to be brutally honest, it wasn't, I wasn't finding my kind of fit there. I, I felt like a misfit. And I think that goes back to the reasons why I went into graduate school. Um, and um, so while I was able to sort of ignore those, those issues, um, they, you know, for a long time at the end, I kind of had to sort of be very frank with myself and say, okay, I've got one life to live. I might as well do something that gives me a bit more um, uh, sort of personal satisfaction. What role, because in the intro that Yezen gave, right, you're obviously very involved in a lot of different organizations in the culture space. Um, what role do you think institutions like the Arab American Museum and like some of the other ones that you're involved in, what gap are they filling um, that maybe the academy and sort of universities are not, that uh, maybe it's not a gap, but in what, what is the work that you're doing that's complementary to the work that the academy is doing? So we base a lot of our work on kind of scholarship, right? But what I think is different is that you know, we're more of a public facing, um, uh, we, have a, we have a platform that reaches the public and the general public, as opposed to say a university where, you know, it's a, it's a kind of, you know, in a university, professors are teaching students, professors publish, and most of their publications are read by other scholars. Um, at, a, at a museum, you're really, um, your audience is the general public. And so you're, what you're doing is you're taking all the knowledge that you know, scholars do and, and staff at the museum. I mean, they're either trained as scholars as well, they have PhDs or they have master's degrees, and they're presenting that knowledge in a way that is accessible to the lay public. So it's, yeah. it's still sort of keeping it you know, sophisticated and nuanced, but presenting it in a way that's, that's accessible. It was interesting kind of hearing you talk at the beginning that I'm actually, I didn't think about it until you said it out loud, but there's a lot of continuity between what you were sort of studying in academics and in an earlier period, 
and what you're working on now at the Arab American Museum, because I feel like that social history is sort of the anchor of, of, the, of the museum, right? Yeah, I mean, what we do here is tell stories about Arab Americans, not just we're telling their stories, but it's we're letting them tell their own stories. So, um, you know, a lot of, you know, our archives are full of documents, you know, objects, photographs, donated by um, Arab Americans. We do, we have an oral history project where we record the stories of Arab Americans. Um, and we use those, those stories, those oral histories, uh, the documents to shape the exhibits that we have. Um, you know, and what we, yeah, so it's, it's very much, my, my trajectory, it, it seems a little kind of, um, you know, I took a lot of turns, but in a way there was a, there was a constant in them in that I was very, always very interested in, in history and culture, uh, always interested in the Middle East, um, you know, specifically Palestine, but generally in, in the part of the world I come from. Yeah. And also about, you know, retelling and sharing with others, um, you know, what I love about this part of the world that I come from. Can you, so the, the name of the full name of the museum is Air American National Museum. And then subtext in, in Dearborn, Michigan. In Dearborn, Michigan. Yeah. So yeah, can you talk about that, that duality um, being a community facing museum yeah. in a community like Dearborn with a huge population that's Arab American? The idea of being Arab American in Dearborn is front facing. It's, 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 it's a huge part of the community. But you're a national museum, and so you're serving these two communities at the same time, and maybe even three when you think about the Arab world more broadly. How do you manage that triangulation? Very, <laughs> it's very hard. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's not a coincidence that we're located in Dearborn. I mean, for yeah. those of you who are, you know, listening, and Dearborn is, um, you know, arguably the capital of Arab America, uh, Michigan, or this area of Michigan, Southeast Michigan, has the highest concentration of Arab Americans in the nation, not in numbers and population, but just the concentration. Um, Dearborn is very much, you know, an Arab town, like there's Arab signs all over, people speak Arabic, it's, 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 it's a very particular and unique, it's a unique place. Um, so, and we're a part of an organization called ACCESS, which is the Arab American Center for Economic and Social Services. This is a human uh, services agency that was set up in 1971 to assist the new Arab immigrants, um, you know, providing them services, translation, how to get your you know, driver's license, whatever. And that has become the largest Arab American nonprofit. So we're part of this legacy of social work and, and community building. And we grew out of a cultural arts uh, project or program in, in access. Um, so yeah, we're very much a community, but we're, we're very planted in, we're in East Dearborn, which is th the center of the center kind of. Um, and, uh, but we try to, you know, at least since, you know, since I've come, which is, I've only been here about a year and, and a few months, um, really trying to reach out to the, the national Arab community. Um, and that's hard to do because you're right, we're so located and associated with, with Michigan. And the idea of an Arab American identity, it's not a clearly defined one, right? You're not just, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to represent people who come from 22 different countries that, you know, span two continents, right? And not everybody from these countries is necessarily Arab and not everybody from these countries, even if, if we would, I would consider them Arab, don't self-identify as Arab. So, you know, who is an Arab American? That's the question we keep trying to ask. We keep asking ourselves. Um, and so we're trying to, you know, and you have to also buy into the idea that there's an Arab identity, right? Um, you know, versus I'm, you know, Palestinian identity or, you know, an Egyptian or Sudanese or, so um, it's, it's, it's hard, but what's been, what's funny is that, or is that since we've gone remote with COVID and are closing to the public, and we've really, we've, you know, shifted to online programming, we've really been able to reach this national audience in ways I don't think we had been successful before. And um, 
I think we found a kind of uh, niche or we've scratched some sort of itch where there is a there is an Arab American community there that is you know interested in in listening to poets who identify self as Arab American or you know write Arab poetry or you know um, that hear music to watch chefs create dishes that are Arab. I mean, so there's there is something there, but it's 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 a very um, it it's hard it's a hard thing to do. And if you want to think about it, you know. Critically, it's, 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 you know, what are we trying to do? And it's constantly shifting, this, this, yeah. this definition of Arab American, I think. I mean, it's and, funny because these are questions. Oh, sorry, Deanna, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No. It's, it's funny because these are questions that we ask in Afikra. I mean, we have these conversations all the time about who, what does it mean when we say the history of the Arab world and the culture of the Arab world. Also with COVID, I think, we've also realized that, you know, we've had these super localized programs in cities uh, and the community around them was really, you know, has, it has its own feeling, it has its own sort of magic to it. But then also moving online, being forced to move online has actually connected us to a much bigger and connected the people in the community to a much bigger kind of network. Um, and has, re has brought up those questions again, I think, right, Mikey, about what, who is Arab and what, what, do we talk, what are we talking about and what does it cover? So I'm also curious to know, like, in Dearborn, because it's such a specific place, what has, you know, what does the Arab American community look like in Dearborn? And what is their relationship to sort of the Middle East and their home countries, the 22 different countries that they come from, and the sort of community that they've created in, in the United States? So Dearborn, um, as far as I understand it, demographically now, um, it's essentially, I mean, the, it's mostly either Lebanese uh, and Lebanese Shia. Um, uh, it's um, Yemeni, there's a large Yemeni community, and Iraqis. Um, and so their connection, I mean, to their that you know to the homeland to their 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 places of national origin is still very strong um the yemenis and the iraqis are, are although the yemenis have been here for many you know since the the 20s the early 20th century a lot of yemenis have come since the you know the with the war and the humanitarian crisis so it's it's a younger kind of immigrant population uh likewise with the iraqis with the iraqi iraq war and 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 the like there's been more of an immigration so the connections with with back home are still very strong and it affects you know them and 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 um so that connection is still very is still there but with the lebanese they're much more i think you know they've also been here like the yemenis since the early 20th century and they you know the syrian lebanese um in many ways were the kind of i think the the, the main community here in in, in dearborn and in michigan um, so their ties to this part of the country are longstanding and um, and are very very deep. But yet still, you know, very much tied to to Lebanon. Like many of them who have grown up here, third, fourth generation, still some of them still go back to Lebanon every summer when they can. So, but the identity of, of a Dearborn Arab American is, I mean, again, you can't. You, you can stereotype and say there is, but it's, it's a very, again, it's a very rich and diverse identity. Um, uh, and, but it's one that I think, you know, for the residents are very um, confident and uh, um, in expressing what that identity might be, whether it's Arab, whether it's Arab Muslim, you know whether it's Iraqi. It's it's and, and I find I find this young generation very confident in their identities as well. And I think that comes from living in a community that is, you know, very Arab, uh, proudly Muslim, proudly Arab. Um, and, and there are you know Christians here as well. It's not just you know, but but I think in this part it's majority Arab, Muslim. Um, very uh, comfortable in their skin. And 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 says someone who's you know you know, approaching 50, it's, I didn't see this when I was, you know, in the U.S. as a college student mm -hmm. um, back in the 90s. It's it, so, and I don't think I saw it anywhere else in the U.S. except for, for really here. So it's, it's a, it's an interesting place where, um, 
yeah, I, for the first time, really, I see this this very confident and confident Arab American identity. Do you feel um, so? I'm I'm curious also about the audience in the Arab world um, and how the audience in the Arab world views the work that the museum is doing, because I think there is a really like interesting thing happening. Uh, as as sort of uh, sort of global travel becomes more and more easy in the towards the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century that these communities are uh, these diaspora communities are fluid and people are going back and forth and so do you feel like you have a responsibility as a museum to kind of tell the immigrant story back to the region and say no 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 this is this is a valuable rich culture this arab american community is a valuable rich culture and it's, you know, we're, we are a dynamic thing. I don't, we, our work is directed mostly towards the domestic, you know, the U.S. community, right? Yeah. I don't think we think of programming or whatever we do in terms of the international or the, 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 the Arabs back, you know, the Arab community in the Arab world. Um, but your point is is well taken that we are telling the story of Arab immigration to the United States um, and the history of acculturation of the Arabs into into this country and the sort of successes and the achievements um, that they were able to to accomplish. Um, so in a way, um, yes, we are. You know, if we were to be, if we were to address them directly. This is what we would say: is that there is a a community here that's very that is very conscious of their Arab roots um, and a very vibrant one. I mean, one of the more, you know, we 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 this year is the the twenty the hundredth anniversary of the Pen League, which is the the Rabat al Qalaniya, which is the the, the group of uh, literary group that Khalid Gibran and and Ali uh, Abu Mahdi and and those figures developed you know um, created in, in 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 New York, and so. You know what we try. You know, for Arab Americans, it's very important because it's this this accomplishment that happened here, right? But it's very important to to remind you know I to keep reminding people that you know this this also impacted the you know development of Arab Arab literature and poetry back in the the homeland. So there is a you know you there is cultural production here. There is there are accomplishments that do affect things back back home, and. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, um, I don't know if I'm answering your question correctly, but, no. there, you know, we don't, yeah, we don't, we don't pro uh, program for Arabs back home, but I think it's a, it's a good thing to start thinking about more intentionally, because there are a lot of linkages, there are a lot of connections and, you know, movement of ideas and people are, are constant. So we should maybe, maybe we should start <laughs> thinking about that. <laughs> Because I mean, as a just uh, before Yazan, I, I pass it to you. Like as a as a kid of both uh, a a Lebanese parent born and raised in Lebanon and a Lebanese immigrant parent born in the States, I do get the sense, at least internally, that there's like this Arab American community that feels like what they're producing doesn't ever feel like they're, the Arab Arab stuff that they're producing never like fully can live up to the Arab stuff being produced by their their long lost cousins in the Arab world. And that's just like not true. Um, and so telling the, the legitimate story is like useful. Because it's kind of a fraught thing, I think, even for Arab Americans and depending on like their story of how they came here and when they came here, the relationship, I think, like sometimes not being able to speak Arabic or not being able to produce things in Arabic feels you know, it feels embarrassing or it feels like that's not Arab enough. I mean, it's again, it's one of the questions that comes up in Afikra about, you know, that this is not a competition, who's more Arab than who. But I'm kind of curious with, you know, this, this idea of, because you had mentioned to me in other conversations about how there's sort of a, for lack of a better word, a sort of hybrid um, culture that happens where you have you know, smaller populations of different national origins in one location interacting with each other and being in the United States kind of produces, you know, its own, its own sort of culture where things feel a little bit different than they would back home, but there's sort of, there is a conversation between them. 
Um, so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that and maybe how does that into, you know, you, you, where did the museum start in 2005 as far as who was, who, who were you considering in this idea of Arab American and how has that shifted over the years? I'm sure things like September 11th probably was a major turning point in how people identified and self-identified and maybe how is that part of the museum's kind of vision for the next five, 10 years? It's a lot there, so just pick whatever you want. Yeah, no, I mean, I should, I should say, so when the museum opened in, in 2005, um, so, you, so we opened in 2005, which means that work on the museum was happening, you know, in the four to five years beforehand. So right after 9-11, which I think, um, and I, if, if I understand the history, and again, this is way before my time here, is that the events of September 11th really galvanized and, and pushed you know, access to like say, okay, we need to sort of set up this museum um, so that it can be a place where there is you know, accurate or information on Arab Americans that's based in, in, in fact and research and, you know, um, and that are, that's accurate. Um, so, um, but, so the, the, the kind of the, the face of Air America at that time, and at least in terms of, you know, what the Air American Museum was trying to paint was, was trying to be as representational as, as possible. But I think, you know, it was, you know, if you go through the exhibits, you don't see a lot of the, it doesn't reflect the demographics of today, only because it was built 15 years ago, and a lot has changed in the last 15, 20 years. So we're very aware that, that we're not representing the current face of Arab America. We need to have more African Arab representation, tell their stories, more North Africans, uh, Yemenis need to be sort of, you know, included and their stories discussed. We, we do do that, but not to the extent that say you would find about Syrian, Lebanese, Palestinian. And that's, I think, because that was, from my understanding, the sort of the, the the dominant community and what people here are and who they know. Even though there was a sort of national program or project to collect as much stories and objects and documents as possible. Mm -hmm. But that's something that we're very aware of and we're, we are very committed to changing that. At this point, it's a funding issue too. I mean, redoing your exhibits costs a lot of money, but we are intent, it's, it's a priority for us. And so we're, we're very, um, keen on, on, on addressing that shortcoming that we have. But we try to make up for it in our programming. So that programming is much more flexible. And we try to really address those gaps that we have in our permanent exhibits and the core exhibits through the programming that we do. And that there is a very, there's a wide range and spectrum of what it means to be Arab American. In terms of what you were asking me about how, how these sort of hybrid cultures create you know evolve in Dearborn so I'm not from Dearborn and I came to Dearborn really for the first time when I started this job and, and, and as somebody who I was born in Canada I grew up in Kuwait I came to the U.S. when I was 18 and lived here for 20 years you know I lived, I lived in the east coast which doesn't have that you know the Arabs Arab Americans have been there for many years but I wasn't part of an Arab American community in in the east coast apart from my you know best friends many of whom were, were, were Arab um, but here, it's, it's interesting for me just as, say, as a, as a historian or as somebody who's attuned to these things that, yeah, it's, it's a, certain rituals and aspects are very familiar, but very, very different. Um, and, and my one, my favorite example is a very kind of macabre one, and it's, it's about, you know, uh, you know mourning and, and funeral rites. It's, 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 it's very different than what I'm used to back home. But what it is, it's an Americanized way of, you know, dealing with, with death rituals in, in, in the United States by, you know, Arab communities, whether they're Sunni or, or, or Shia. So these kind of things I pick up on and I find very interesting, but it's just, it's just you know, it's, it's funny to see how culture, how something as, you know, sort of, I don't know, how, how cultural practices and rituals change when, when, you know, they're taken from the place of origin and they have to sort of adapt to a new environment, so. Great. Um, Deanna, I think we're going to do this quick Q&A and then we're going to uh, shift into the, the group Q&A. Um, okay, let's, let's go ahead. Yasin, do you want to read them or should I? 
Sure. Um, so, Deanna, our first question is, what are you reading, watching right now? Okay, what I'm, um, what I'm reading right now is actually a book um, called The Heritage. I, I brought it with me because I, I um, it's called The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. And it's by um, someone called Howard Bryant. He's a sports journalist. Um, and I'm very interested in sort of the athlete activist um, like Muhammad Ali or John Carlos, if, if people know who these are. Um, and so it's always, it's sort of, it reminds me of like, I don't know, it's like the, the, the committed Arab, you know, lit, literary writer, literature person and, and, and writer. Um, so it's, it's very interesting how sports and politics are very much intertwined, even though we think of, you know, sports as just a pastime. And I'm not an athlete at all. I don't do sports, but I find, I think, I think because when I was, I, my obsession actually started with Muhammad Ali because when I was growing up in Canada, his name was very close to my father's name, which was Muhammad Abu Ali. And I think I, I grew up with some sort of thinking they were related or I don't know. <laughs> I've always been obsessed with Muhammad, Muhammad Ali. And, um, and, and also his story of his activism, his conversion to Islam and, and, and so on and so forth. So that's what I'm reading now. Um, in addition to, of course, other books that are, you know, I started and finished watching you, mm -hmm. oh no i was going to say have you seen when we when the, uh when we were kings absolutely yeah okay. i just yeah. because you were about to say what we're watching i was like if you haven't watched this you have to watch <laughs> when we were kings. yeah yeah, yeah. No, no 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 i've, I've watched yeah i've watched all those things <laughs> and again i'm not an athlete i don't i'm not even an athletic supporter like i don't i don't even watch any sports but there's something about yeah the athlete the obsession with people with sports, they're kind of, maybe they're responsible, they're, they're, yeah, do they have a responsibility? I don't know. So it's, it's an interesting thing to think about, I think. Totally a contemporary question, obviously. In the, in the States, this is a contemporary question that's coming up in yeah. football. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the idea of the book is that, you know, it used to be that a lot of the athletes, black athletes, were, were very political. Um, that in the 70s, 80s, once all these endorsements and, you know, the commercialization of, of the athlete, you know, they took a step back and stopped being as political as they could be. And now we see a research, a return to that sort of origin with, with uh, Kaepernick, with uh, LeBron James and what have you. Bill, Bill Russell is like, is, is my absolute hero because he did it in so many like un, um, unglorified ways. He's amazing. The Bill yeah. Russell story is incredible. Who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? So uh, I don't know. <laughs> so this one, I'd rather live in a past, like in a period in the past, rather than shadow somebody in particular. Okay. So uh, you know, like I studied 17th century Jerusalem. I would love to spend a day there. You know, what what did the city look like? You know. I don't know, just be around people. That, that's sort of what I would like, you know, go to Alhamra and be a princess in the, in, the, in the palace for a day. That's what I would like to do rather than shadow somebody in particular. Fact check, make sure everything that you've researched and come up with is actually what it was. Yeah, but also, it's also like, what, what did it smell like? What did it, you know, was the air a lot cleaner? You know, there was no, you know, pre-industrial, I don't know, the world before industry, what did it smell like? Um, maybe bad, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, so what do people most uh, misunderstand about your work? People think that museums are just sort of, you know, we're, we're a history of immigration. We talk about Arab, you know, we promote Arab culture and history. Um, and I think there's a misunderstanding that we need to be neutral, you know, not take a political stance. Um, and... I think we always, you know, we should, we, we're, we're, museums are not neutral. I know that's a sort of slogan, but it's true. I think museums have a real responsibility to uh, uh, take a stance politically, to be very frank and honest about, you know, their role in, you know, maybe enabling or creating or contributing to systemic racism. I mean, not a museum necessarily like ours, but these larger encyclopedic museums. Um, that we find in, in America, like the, you know, the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the British Museum, what have you. So um, I think that's the misunderstanding that we're sort of, you know, we're just presenting culture, but everything is political. 
And I think museums have a responsibility to address that, that aspect of the work. And our last quick fire question is, uh, whose work do you admire and are inspired by? So that one also, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there are a few people that I, whose works I like, for instance, um, there's a historian called Louise Thatcher Ulrich, and she wrote a book called The Handmaid's Tale, not The Handmaid's Tale, sorry, that's, <laughs> no, The Midwife's Tale, sorry. <laughs> and it's a, it's a, it's a sort of, it's like a micro history. It's a history of a, of a woman who was a uh, midwife in, in Maine in the 18th century, and she left a diary, like, a, and, and her diary entries were telegraphic. But from that diary, from those telegraphic diary entries, um, Louise Thatcher Ulrich was able to create this panoramic view and understanding of what life was like um, in that part of the world. Um, and so after reading that, which to me read like a novel, I mean, it's just a masterful piece of work, you know, then I was like, oh, I wish I had written, or I could write something like that. So that's kind of what I, I'm inspired by. I'm inspired by like the writings of Rebecca Solnit. She's a, you know, a beautiful writer and essayist. And I'm also inspired, I mean, but I don't have heroes, so to speak. Um, but, you know, just inspired by people who can do amazing things. Like, again, back to the athletes. Like, I am not an athletic, like I said, you know, very clumsy and what have you. But to be able to express yourself, like say a dancer, express yourself through, through your body is just, from, to me, um, you know, I, I, can't even, I can't even understand what that is like. So that's, that's the kind of thing I'm, I think, inspired by. Things I, I, I would like to be able to do, or just even to, 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 to feel what it'd be like for a day or something, I don't know. Great. Um, okay, so we're gonna switch to the questions now. Um, we have the first four, just everybody hears them at the same time. The first four are going to be um, Angelica, then Salah, Rose, and then Marianne Peters, and then hopefully we can get to more um, but Angelica, go for it. Um, hi, Diana. Thank you for your time and for sharing a little bit with us. Um, my question is, um, what's your favorite object in the museum? Or when you're bringing a guest there for the first time, what's the first thing you take them to? So, um, thank you, Angelica. That's a, that's a great question. My, my favorite object is um, there are a pair of shoes that were worn by a woman called... Uh, I think her name is Saad Abdullah, and she's, she was um, Syrian. And these shoes are, they're kind of like Mary Janes with a bit of a heel, and they're entirely done in beadwork. Um, and they're beautiful. And she wore them as she, you know, when she came across the ocean, you know, from her home in, in, in Syria over to, to the United States. But unfortunately, she had to return back to Europe because of, uh, she had an illness, and they wouldn't let her in through Ellis Island. And then she came back again. She was able to re-enter. So um, those are my my favorite because you you know you know you think it starts thinking of shoes and walking in her shoes and but the, the the object itself is really beautiful and I had never really seen beaded shoes. The entire shoe is is beads beadwork. So it's it's quite beautiful. And I think okay. we see it on our website. So nice. That's lovely. Thank you. You're Great. Thanks, Angelica. So next up is Saleh. So my question is, do you have a plan to launch an Arabic version of the museum's website as do other museums like the Japanese American National Museum, which has Japanese, uh, Japanese version, and the Chinese American Museum as well? Yeah, you, you know, we, uh, Saleh, thank you for that, that question. Um, we are very much aware that we need to provide, you know, Arabic language content in our museum and on our website. Um, that's a, a bit of an undertaking that we, you know, but we, you know, we need to sort of do that. Um, we're planning for that, inshallah, we can. Um, it just involves a lot of, there's some things that we need to have in place before we can do that. But I, I, I understand your, I, I appreciate your, your point and your point is very well taken. And, and we, we should have an Arabic, we should have Arabic language on our website. We just launched the new website as well. So if you go visit it, that's only been up for a few weeks. Um, 
and uh, hopefully slowly we'll start to add more and more Arabic content. We have Mar we have Rose next, and then Marianne after that. Rose. Hi, Diana. Thank you so much for this. Um, I love what you said about museums being community spaces. And I was just wondering um, what you do to invite people into the museum space who may feel intimidated by it or may not relate to it um, kind of on the off. And how important it is for you to connect them, especially that audience, to those histories that relate to them. Thanks, Rose. Um, yeah, we. Um, when we were open <laughs> before we closed, we yeah we were, we were aware of that that there is that sort of reputation that museums have that somehow we're a little elitist, um, even though we really are not. Um, but what we try to do is we do a lot of programming for uh, families and for children, and that's one way to get them into the museum. So we do like a Halloween party, we have our Eid party, and we have a Christmas uh, party, and um, those are open to the public. Um, uh, they're free, except for the Halloween, if you're an adult, you have to pay. But, um, uh, so that's one way to get people, get kids and people into the museum. They can go through the exhibits. We have scavenger hunts. So we try to make it a fun space for, for, uh, for people. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's, so that's one way. Another way is we have a lot of school visits who, you know, school groups that come. And um, it's one way not just to teach about Arab American history, but to show them that this museum is really, you know, a resource for them. It's a place that they can come to um, and it can be fun. Uh, and we also, you know, we have a lot of rent spaces that we rent to the public. We, you know, and it can be used for anything. And we keep our prices very, very low. And sometimes we just even, we don't even, you know, charge community groups to use them. So um, I think, you know, and we, we're programming also, we, we, you know, and this is targeting maybe more of youth or young people is we try to bring, you know, we have a really great public programmer here at the museum and she's very attuned to, you know, the kind of music and, and performances that, yeah. that young people like. And I think that's a, a really good way to bring people in is that we, you know, we try to be on top of what what appeals to this younger generation of Arab Americans and even not even Arab Americans it's you know we get our, our audiences are, are very very mixed so those are some ways we do we, we do do it um, um, we were planning to do more community outreach and try to figure out you know why our, our immediate neighbors don't come to us as much and I don't know if it's yeah. just like you know, when you have a you have a tourist destination in your backyard you don't go or whether there is a sort of, you know, a disconnect or they, they don't feel welcome. And, and but then, you know, we had COVID and that kind of stopped things. But we try our best to make sure that, you know, this is a very welcoming space. We have a, you know, we have a library that's open. Uh, it's not a public library, but people can come in and use it. Um, so, we, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Rose. Um, let's take three more questions. I think we have enough time for three. So we'll have Marianne, then we'll have Farah, and then we'll have Leila. Hi, Diana. I'm Marianne in Seattle, and I've been on a panel for the museum in its early days, which was really quite something. And I also just want to do a shout out for your librarian, because I've um, been able to call them directly and ask them questions and have them restart research for me from this distance. So it's been really a great thing about the museum. My question is, uh, I happen to come from a family who anglicized their names. Uh, my grandparents both immigrated here at the turn of the 20th century and anglicized our name to Peters from Butras. And um, I'm curious how you trace histories in your archives from these hybridized uh, communities or families whose names or their origins are in question. I honestly, I don't know the answer to that question specifically. I mean, we don't, maybe we may not trace, but if, I guess, is your question like if, if someone like you with Peters came and said, I'm Arab, what could my original name be? Is that the question? It would, it would be close to that and also to find the lineage of migration. I mean, I've been able to find a lot of information just in general, historically, but, um, to be more specific about my family, it's a little bit 
the family lore as much as anything? Honestly, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I'm not going to even speculate, but okay. if you came to me with that question, I would say go talk to our research and content manager and he will know what to tell you. Um, okay. we, I, I, yeah, I'm not a historian of Arab American, you know, the Arab American community. So it's, it's not, I can't answer that question, you know, with any accuracy, but I, we, I wouldn't know who to tell, who to send you to, but um, yeah. Archive, like what is the museum's archive collection? Does it include these sorts of like personal family documents? Is it more like, give us a little overview of that. That's quite interesting. Yeah, so in, in the archive, there are sort of collections of, of, of documents that are given by, like a lot of them are family papers from particular people. For instance, Evelyn Shackett, who was a, you know, a, a writer, Arab American, donated, you know, family papers um, from her parents and hers to the museum. So we've got that collection. Um, we might have some, you know, family, there are some family trees, but they're very, as far as I understand, very specific to those families. So we're, we're not so much, uh, I think, able to, as far as I understand, able to kind of trace lineage um, and ancestry, although we might be able to direct you to how to find that, whether it's through, a, you know, figuring out when they came, looking at uh, ship manifests. I don't know, directing you to Ellis. I, I'm not really sure. And I, that's not my area of expertise by any, you know, stretch of the imagination, but I, I would know how, we would probably be able to sort of direct you in a way where you could help, you could find the information that you're looking for. Hi. Uh, thank you for this. Uh, just a quick question and considering like in a non COVID world where travel was still a thing, uh, were there any plans for traveling exhibits or things that would maybe start in Dearborn and branch out to other cities across the U.S. and maybe adapt to the audiences there or maybe stay as is, but just kind of reach out to different communities so that more people could be exposed to the work that the museum is doing? So we, we, we have had um, traveling exhibits in the past. Um, we've had a few, one was about Little Syria, which is about the Arab American community in, in lower Manhattan. Um, we recently had one called, um, uh, um, it's called Where We, Where We Came From, which is, um, it was, a, it was photographs of, um, objects that, Syrian and Iraqi refugees had brought with them when they came, like they brought with them from their homelands to the United States. And the photographer took a picture of those objects and then given back to the owner and they would write some sort of commentary on it, whether it's in English or Arabic. And those exhibits sort of toured the country. And um, that second exhibit, the one about the photography, I think in every uh, city, the photographer might have sort of interviewed new people and added to the to the to the exhibit, so it seemed to kind of grow um, as it as it toured the country. Um, but um, you know, we're not 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 so many of our exhibits, I think, sort of grow in that way. Although it's 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 a it's a great it's a great idea, but. I know there's one like there's one uh, ex exhibit here called Halal Metropolis, which is not affiliated with us, but with the University of Michigan, and that's one that seems to sort of grow with it. It kind of travels around Michigan and grows um, as it does that. But we we you know we do do some touring exhibits, but we probably need to do a bit more once once things open up and um, we can start doing that again. Let's end with Leila. Hi, Diana. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat. Um, I had a question um, about your career um, and the presence of Arab American um, art or history, basically. It can be really whichever one you choose. But since you began your career um, and you were you left um, the US for a bit and then returned. Have you seen a larger presence um, in the documentation of Arab American art and or history? Um, and if you have, um, 
this is again a very specific question. I know we're short on time, but um, what do you attribute to that presence? Are you, Leila, are you asking if there's more interest in Arab American art since yes, I learned? That's what I mean. If there's more of an interest in, in even the preservation or documentation of that. Um, I think, I think so. Although, I think so. I mean, there's, there's more, I think there's more, um, you know, there are more people studying Arab American art, I believe, at the, you know, at the university level. Um, we remain, as, again, as far as I understand, the only institution that actively, well, we don't actively because we don't have a budget to, to, to buy, to purchase art, but we, you know, are intentional about trying to collect Arab American art. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, but I think there's a lot more. What, what that's attributed to, I think. I think the the maturity of the, the community and the fact that there are a lot of really great Arab American artists who are, you know, actually contributing to the conversation of art in general. And it's not just about being Arab American, but about being an artist and a good one and pushing the kind of uh, the conversation forward or pushing the the, the mediums forward. Um, and uh, so, but yeah, but I think there's also, you know, a question about, you know, I'd like to see more of it, more interest in it, um, more platforms for artists to, to, to you know, show their art, uh, more conferences about what Arab American art is. Um, is there such a thing as Arab American art? Um, and if there is, what is it? And what are the kind of issues that it deals with? So I, I see, and, and, and to, be, to be honest, again, I, I, I wasn't as sort of tuned into, you know, Arab American arts. I knew about Arab American artists, but I, I didn't really know much about it as a kind of, let's say, movement or a group. But I think um, there seems to be more interest, I think, because of the maturity of the artists and the artwork itself in the community. Thank you so much. And that Arab Americans are probably going into and studying art history as well. So there's a sort of uh, sensitivity to it. Thank you so much again. Thanks. Thanks, Leila. Um, Deanna, thanks so much for joining us. I want to thank Yazan as well. Um, this has been a huge pleasure to have you on the show and to have you share your insights and your perspectives and spread the word of, about what the museum is doing. Uh, both in Dearborn and around the world. So thanks so, so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was, it was really a pleasure and, and fun. And thanks for the, the yeah, thanks for the opportunity. It's, it's been lovely. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for all the questions. Guys, bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have new episodes coming every single week. Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at afikra.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and stay curious.